Welcome to WWDMD, a podcast that is all about peeling back the curtain on what clinicians really think and feel as they work with others. My guests, clinicians, who are also sometimes clients themselves, risk their vulnerability as they publicly share their emotional reactions to their clients, disclose their challenges in doing the work, and reveal their personal backgrounds. I'm Dr. Myers. I'm a psychotherapist in New York City with 30 years of practice experience, special in anxiety and depressive disorders, as well as sibling relationships and family systems. I'm also a professor of social work at Malloy University on Long Island. I see this as a journey of self-reflection for not only our guests, but you, because with each episode, I'm hopeful that you will learn something new about yourself. Please note that any discussion of case details have been modified to protect the privacy of our clients. What would Dr. Myers do? As you know, I'm a professor of social work at Malloy University. And for many years now, I've been teaching a course on diversity that focuses on power, privilege, oppression, and social justice. And I wanted to talk about my experiences as a white professor in teaching this course. And I'm going to follow it up by having a discussion with my colleagues, one African-American and one white professor who also teaches this course. And I think it's really important to consider our own identities and how this shapes how we move through this course and how we address our students. And I think it replicates some experiences in the broader world, right, beyond the classroom in regard to how we need to have these conversations and what holds people back and the fears that come up and the biases that are present and all that comes with discussing differences. Now, I think particularly because there's so much strife in this world around race and racism and racial disparities that a lot of this discussion will probably focus on that. But I think I really wanted to talk about my identity as a white, hetero, Jewish woman, because the course content focuses on vulnerable populations and includes topics, as I said, that include racism, but also classism, sexism, uh, heterosexism, transgenderism, also known as transphobia, and ageism, and mentalism. So all of these uh, social groups that really have a lot of challenges in how they move through this world and how the world receives them. So as members of various and multiple identity groups, students are often met with confronting their own identities and exploring their own oppression and or privilege. And I say and or because obviously we move through this world with multiple identities and while some allow us to hold privileges, others uh, create oppressive forces. So it's not really just one or the other, right? Our multiple identities position us in various ways. So certainly this can lead to meaningful and enriching and deep discussions that are both ripe 
for commiseration and contention. So I've been teaching this course, as I said, for several years, and I wanted to share what I see as an oftentimes parallel experience between the professor and the students and put out there that I still certainly do not have all the answers to seamlessly teaching a course on diversity, and I don't know if it can be or needs to be seamless. I think that our race and our gender and our religion and political ideology and sexual orientation and body image and on and on create an inherent subjective lens or implicit bias that directs the course of conversations and how we move through this thing called life. So um, at Malloy, the university where I teach, is located in Long Island, New York, which is a region rich with diversity yet confronted by significant racial and socioeconomic segregation. And Long Island has been identified as one of the 10 most segregated communities in the United States. And researchers have suggested that the rate of school segregation on Long Island is currently twice the national average and triple the national standard. Now, despite the proximity to New York City, many of our students have never ventured out of Long Island and their insular communities. And so our classrooms are populated by students primarily from conservative families who continue living at home during their college years. And this creates quite a unique context for their social work education and requires a heightened awareness of these implications for classroom discussions. So although some students enthusiastically report bringing the classroom conversations back into their homes, others remain steadfastly connected to their perspectives, as though broadening their lens could sever family ties. And in the current sociopolitical climate, and we have a recipe for some very stressful conversations or um, or a quiet room in the classroom due to fear of offending others or being offended. Because in this divisive political arena, there's greater challenges than ever to encourage fearful, inexperienced students to engage in racial discourse. They are bombarded with messages of anger and danger. And the way to manage this is not to solicit these discussions. So you know, that they should shut down these conversations and remain neutral. But I don't just want to pontificate. I want to engage. And I consider myself able to confront and take on controversy and to not quiet the discussion, but encourage these conversations while providing, you know, not just a safe space, but a brave space. So a brave space requires modeling of risk-taking. And this is a central theme of the parallel process that's happening, not only for me, right, but for the students. So I'm going to focus on issues of race since this is where most of the discomfort seems to lie for the students. And I say students because while I initially um, was terrified of my lack of knowledge in this area and my authority on the subject, I have grown comfortable with that. And so I am going to be talking about my transference, right, as we get into this. But let me just talk about the class layout, because environment, I think, lends itself to a safe environment. And although many social work classes may be conducted in circle setting, I think that it is essential in a course on diversity. It maximizes not only interaction, which builds community, but also accountability, an expectation is set for active participation. 
And when a student responds directly to another student, right, rather than to somebody's or the back of their head, the learning experience is humanized and the foundation for civil discourse is established. So I think it's really also really important to establish ground rules. And even though that can exacerbate anxiety, it's good anxiety because the creation of a civil classroom is most effective when the students develop and contract around the rules, which of course can be supplemented by me, of what is important to have these discussions. So they usually consist of listening to others, right? We're going to listen. We're not going to speak or interrupt when someone else is talking. We're going to raise our hands because discussions can get heated. And we're going to respect confidentiality outside of the classroom. There's no cell phone use and no negative facial gestures to engage with other students and kind of form that bonding by um, being judgmental or critical of what somebody is saying. So the rules may need revision, modification, and recontracting. And it's important to explain that confrontation is acceptable when it's done with respect. And so this is the beginning of modeling the idea that that C word, confrontation, doesn't have to be feared. It doesn't need to be combative or hostile. So indirectly, I'm um, I'm communicating my role as protector, which requires, on my part, self-awareness of how I'm feeling regarding students' experiences or lack of experiences. So I pay close attention to my reaction to naivety, my reaction to entitlement, and I try really hard not to scapegoat anyone and not to allow a student to monopolize who may be the representation of my voice, knowing that it's safer for me for them to be the vocal one about that. So I often engage hopes and fears for the course from my students and the hope of learning and growing from others and the fear of offending someone or being offended tends to be a repetitive theme every time I teach the course. And I I also publicly share that I too have those hopes and fears. And so there is, of course, for the professor who is teaching this, who isn't tenured, additional vulnerability, right? Because as sensitive as one might try to be, you're not always going to know how a particular student might receive feedback. And a learning moment or an unwelcome focus on a particular topic um, and who they choose to go to with their discontent can be scary and, and again, create vulnerability for, for me or the professor teaching this course, particularly in a culture of student entitlement, great inflation, trigger warnings, and safe spaces across college campus. There's much to fear in the land of academic freedom. Students tend to develop strong transferences to professors, usually based on previous experiences with authority and This can begin from the moment they walk into the classroom, right? What they think of how the professor looks, how the professor introduces his or herself. And so these transverses can uh, be related to how other professors have related to them or not, or their need for approval or their own expectations for achieving A grades, grades with the letter A, um, perceived competition with peers, which can also represent their competition or the relationships with their siblings, um, their sensitivity to feedback, and on and on. And now, while many of these particularly initial transferences can't be changed or shifted, certain experiences can alter the way a student perceives the professor or the learning experience. 
Um, you know, for example, like even the importance of learning students' names shouldn't be minimized. We hold a lot of power in our role. Uh, we assess our students. Uh, we're seen as those who have more knowledge, who hold more power. And it's important because connection and being countable are basic elements of succeeding. Students often want to impress professors, particularly those they feel have high expectations. And earning a grade tends to hold more weight than being entitled to a grade. So if a student feels valued, it's likely that they will strive to succeed. Um, I think about a learning moment that presented itself um, in the classroom and conveyed the importance of communication and interpersonal relations and connectedness. So I was I posed the question as to why I learned student names. And I was met with the response of a student who said, so you know who participates and then you can keep track of our class participation grade. And so even though that's logical, I explained my motivation and the idea that people become individuals when their given identities are acknowledged. And this led to a great discussion of the multiple identities that we carry, some visible, others not. And there was also an opportunity to apply the National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics and the value of interpersonal relationships, students to professor and students to students. And this was a stepping stone to also hold each student accountable for learning the names of each other. So rather than accepting a student's shared sentiment of saying in the classroom, oh, I agree with what she said, I often clarify the name of the student being referenced because when relationships are established, and there's a comfort established in the classroom, students are going to be more open to hearing and learning from their peers, not only their professor. And so slowly the statements of, I agree with what she said, turns into, I agree or don't agree with Sarah. And then the group is formed. And when group cohesion is developed, students are more likely to take risks. So revisiting the idea of classroom transference and people having preconceived notions and projections, an African-American student reflected on her racial identity one semester, and she shared with the class a personal interaction that she and I had. Um, she talked about how when she walked into um, the common area of the social work department and followed me into her office. I hadn't recognized her because of her new hairdo. And I said, oh, I didn't recognize you. And I saw her expression change, one that I couldn't quite identify, but interpreted as her feeling that I had slighted her. And I asked her about it, and she denied having an emotional response. But in class, when the issue of racial stereotypes was being addressed, particularly around the white... Anglo-Saxon beauty standards that are applied to all races, the student brought forth her interaction with me in the social work office. And so now she was donning straight hair and bangs, and she interpreted my reaction as unacceptance and making assumptions about how she should look. And so I was able to clarify my reaction and certainly didn't want her to feel dismissed by me upon not recognizing her. And I also didn't want to come across as defensive, but it led to a discussion about silent perceptions and the importance of dialogue. So based on her lived experience, she assumed that all white people would experience her as she has experienced and as conveyed by society, right? As being less than. So how important was it to her for her to have the opportunity to check out her reality? 
reality. And I was also aware of the class's response to what was happening between her and I, and was cautious of creating a group dynamic that would perpetuate a sense of shared oppression from me. So I was really cautious to share my experience with and of the student without again, being defensive, because this openness provided a valuable lesson on distinguishing the reactions of others based on real or perceived experience, both shaped from a historical perspective. So what are the vulnerabilities of students who've experienced oppression and are now bringing in those experiences and assumptions into the classroom? How are students impacted by their professor's white privilege and the power infused in the authority role of the professor. How are students of color supposed to feel safe with a professor's white privilege permeating every discussion in a classroom? Is it possible for me with every effort I may want to make or try to make to offer safety? And it makes me think about what the goal or my role or my responsibility is to be the gatekeeper of their experiences and perceptions and to balance validating their experiences with offering a corrective emotional experience. Michael Dover wrote about his experiences as a social work intern working with youth of color, and he was um, talking about how he intentionally hired or was hired as a white social worker in a residential program for male youth in the hope that the youth could have a new experience with a white male authority in a helping role. And so through his engagement, he thought that he could have the potential for these youth of color to have a new positive transference to a white helper. Now, I'm clear that there is a delineation between the role of social worker and our responsibility to a client and the role of professor and our responsibility to a student. Yet somehow in this course in particular, the desire to manage the emotional experiences of each student and the class as a whole can feel substantial, if not burdensome. And while it's important to pay close attention to student vulnerability and encourage risk-taking by sharing and challenging their views, similarly, there are also risks and exposure faced by me teaching this course. It can often feel like I'm walking on landmines and at any moment, any insightful or thought-provoking conversation can turn distress into distress for a student and potential accusations to the professor. So on the first day of class, students are invited to share what they've heard about the course. And their preconceived notions have ranged from you learn a lot about yourself in the world to them having heard exciting and scary things and how we get into pretty heated conversations. So in essence, what I'm trying to do is to give students permission to share their fears and vulnerabilities. And at the end of the first class, as I said, students are asked to write on the front of an index card their greatest fear and on the back their greatest hope. And so this allows them to share excitement about the prospect of learning about themselves and other cultures, and their fears are reflected back to the class the second time that we meet um, so that it can be normalized and validated. I am very honest with students, and I tell them that I will inevitably but unintentionally make someone upset and that I welcome any respectful dissent in the classroom and certainly outside of the classroom. And I think that stating this and then modeling it throughout the semester gives them permission to make mistakes, 
you know, make assumptions or use politically incorrect language and gently confront those of others. So I generally share two stories with students. And one came after I debriefed with the class at the end of the semester. And a student of color shared that at the beginning of the semester, she silently wondered, what does a white professor know about diversity? And I thought that this lesson was golden. Um, she recognized and validated that the success of the learning experience was the experience of being heard. And the professor also can't deny the impact on her own sense of vulnerability, right? What does a white professor know about diversity? So for her to be able to share this at the end of the semester, to me, implied that I did something right, that she was able to express this because the tide had changed, that I was able to use my cultural humility and show that I did not have all the answers and that I wanted to learn from my students' lived experiences and that I am not the, um, the authority on race. And I think the second story offers the importance of perception, perspective, and the complexity of race relations. So early in my professional journey, I ran a group for post-incarcerated the men. And the men were people of color, while I am white, young, and I was young then and inexperienced. And at one point in the group, one of the men asked where I was from. And I knew enough to wonder what meaning it held, and I wanted to explore the client's fantasy. Now, although the group was held in the Bronx, right, a culturally diverse neighborhood populated by the lower and middle classes, he said that I must have been from Greenwich, Connecticut, which is an astute suburb home to the higher socioeconomic class. So the client expressed his vulnerability and perhaps anger and perhaps disappointment about being understood and perhaps even a fear of being judged. He was also bothered by the idea that he was in no way relatable to me and I to him. And all I could do was acknowledge his concern and his reality and strive to learn about his experience through him. So I think that the scenario offers multiple learning moments. The first is that it's impossible to control how one is perceived. We all project feelings from earlier experiences onto others and see others through the lens of these experiences. The lesson, too, was that there are variations in our physical appearances that assume difference. And thirdly, perspective indicates much about somebody's lived experiences. We can learn so much about somebody with what they assume and how they view others and situations. Also, that I had and have unintentional and unrecognized privilege at times. I strive to understand what that privilege is and how it shapes how I'm perceived and how I relate to others and move through this life. But that we also have to strive to help people feel understood. We don't know what we don't know. So it's important to being open and to learning about what we don't know. And that we, the clients and students and the clinician and the professor are all vulnerable to being perceived other than how we would like. Can that be okay? Is it okay? Can we see it as a learning experience and a growth potential rather than a slight? So my unrecognized privilege, another example, highlights the guilt that can be associated with white privilege. So inadvertently, when discussing racism, white students 
still inevitably deny their privilege. They sometimes defend against this by insisting that they are challenged in other areas of their life, which they are, such as socioeconomically, um, physically, religiously, and on and on. And it's important to acknowledge that we all have our challenges, but no matter what, if you're white, you have privilege. Now, this unintentionally evokes guilt. And so I have been accused of trying to make white people feel guilty, and that is certainly not my goal. So it's important that I validate all experiences and lay the foundation that we're still reaping the benefits of those established before us and continued by institutional racism. And so the aim is simply to develop awareness of how this occurs. And I use myself as an example. Now, one of the units covers transphobia. And each semester, I have a trans uh, individual come and speak to the class. And students love the experience. The speaker is articulate, kind, thoughtful, insightful, and unabashedly open to any and all questions. And actually, her name is Hannah Fonz, and she um, was a guest on my earlier episode called All Things Trans, if you are interested. But um, her presence and life experience has, according to students, transformed them. And it's important to it's important to contextualize that um, she made a presentation in one class about a couple of weeks after President Trump's win, and sensitivities were particularly heightened. So one student asked um, her if he felt any discrimination since becoming transgendered. And Hannah explained that she felt she was lucky, that she had the support of her family and her friends, and her only major obstacle occurred when she attempted to use the men's bathroom. And this is something she's contended with on a daily basis. She continued that given the recent election results, she was quite concerned with societal treatment on both an individual and policy basis. Well, one student became quite offended and said that Hannah had nothing to worry about, that Trump Trump supports the LGBTQ population. And the class immediately responded with vigor. And I saw that Hannah's demeanor shifted from a steadfast calm to a pot of boiling water that was about to overflow. But she did everything she could to try to explain her perspective without attacking the student. But the student kept coming back with her evidence. I put that in quotes, her evidence. And I felt a momentary paralysis, not knowing if I should intervene or allow Hannah to handle the situation on her own. I didn't want the student to become the scapegoat and felt that it was important for Hannah to share her reality. And in the end, there was a teachable moment, which perhaps the class was more responsive to than the particular student. Everyone has their right to their own perspective, right? Even this student. But it's important to, one, know the facts, two, never challenge someone's lived experiences. And I think as social workers, we're not in the business of always getting to the facts. But most important is understanding someone's perception of their own experience. So let's be open, right? If we want to learn, if you're listening to this episode, the goal is to have these difficult and challenging conversations, to be open to being critiqued, to being open to hearing someone's experience that might be different than your own. 
seems that millennials are much more accepting of diversity than generations prior. And generally, most students, most people, want to perceive themselves as more evolved than they are. And that's understandable. I'm reminded of a defensive statement that's often used by white folks when they say, oh, you know, my best friend is black, when a white person feels accused of a degree of racism from being non-accepting to fully racist. We all want to or strive to be accepting human beings, but most likely we also have entrenched views of certain populations, no matter how evolved we are, because in essence, we are products of our culture. So a student had related her experience of being the only white kid in a high school predominantly of students of color. And she talked about how she was ostracized, how she wanted to sit with them, and how she felt alienated, and how she was the minority in this situation. But it raised the controversial question, can a Black person be racist, and was she in fact the minority? So by definition, racism is based on history of repression. And again, while a white person can experience prejudice and stereotyping and judgment, can she really be oppressed for being white? Again, she can be, re- she can be oppressed for her other identities, but can a white person be considered a minority based on one's immediate environment that they might be involved in? So the student insisted that she was in fact oppressed, and I had pushed her in an attempt to develop her critical thinking. Now, maybe this was my misstep, Maybe this was one of those times I was standing on a landmine or it felt like it. I felt at the time that she was blinded by a privileged lens. But now, upon retrospect and learning that she had felt shamed by me for having privilege, I realized that what I did was invalidate her lived experience. And it made me come to terms with the strong views I hold. And while I strive to mean a balanced platform, we have to give ourselves permission to err. We have biases, and the goal is to manage them. And I am included in this. And to carefully choose my stories of self-disclosure, though I'm strongly aligned with the clinical stance of neutrality and boundaries, I feel that there are teachable moments based on personal experiences in the classroom and to demystify the idea that only people of color experience racism. So as an effort towards modeling risk-taking and vulnerability, I've told students about my experience attempting to negotiate the price of a handbag at a flea market. And my presumption, though, that not a practice of mine was that one haggles, right, as part of the flea market experience. So that if somebody tells you that a handbag is, you know, $40, you say, would you accept $35? It's really not my style, but, you know, when in Rome. So um, when I did this, the shopkeeper asked me if I was trying to Jew him down. Now, this story inevitably leads to a curiosity about my identity, and I imagine I see the wheels turning among students trying to rectify their stereotypes with lived experiences with me, right? Because I have gotten comments of surprise, I didn't know you were Jewish, which leads to greater exploration. Well, what did you think, and what was it based on? Now, I wonder if pursuing an exploration of assumptions about me pushed them to be in a vulnerable position and if that was fair. But again, I'm trying to have a learning moment. If I show that I am not offended by this discussion or this exploration or whatever their assumptions were, then maybe it can create that safety that is needed in a classroom 
that is attempting to broaden uh, people's critical thinking around this. Now, it wasn't until several years of having taught the course that I was confronted with my own sense of guilt over white privilege. I think of myself as a liberal who is committed to social justice, but I, I was not aware of any overt sense of white and economic guilt, though there are or there may be seemingly obvious yet unconscious connection to my passion around social injustices. But a new phenomenon was for me to carefully consider my dress and jewelry style on the days that I would be teaching this course. I was really paying full attention to how I wanted to be perceived. Again, right? How important is that? And how much does that take up space in our lives? How we want to be perceived and how I may actually be perceived. So I had a desire to play down or minimize my obvious privilege. And I questioned my own legitimacy or hypocrisy in teaching about racial and class oppression. Is it, but, you know, I came to think, is it, is it hypocrisy or is it just my life experience? And what is important is to acknowledge the privilege I had, not to hide it. And then I realized the limited control I had over how my students would perceive me um, because it was suddenly striking, as well as the assumption that my appearance itself would determine or contribute to their perception, right? There's so much more to me than that. And whether I dress down or not, the things that I said or how I carried myself obviously held a lot more weight. And But it made me consider how those white students in my class who may have felt shamed or alienated for bring, being privileged as I drove home the oppression of people of color to the benefit of the dominant group. And so in identifying with the oppressed, I in fact became the oppressor. And maybe not identifying, maybe it was allyship with the oppressed, I became the oppressor. So my self-awareness has been heightened to a new level. Oftentimes, I have found it challenging to maintain the boundaries between um, students being their professor versus being their social worker. Now, students are often surprised that their effort didn't earn them a grade of an A. And that's one issue with students expecting that you, quote, social work them, right? That I should understand that they tried or that they had challenges meeting the deadline due to work pressures or that they were babysitting and got sidebarred by the dog who got into the mother's tampons and swallowed one and had to take the dog to the hospital. That's a true story. So, um, I mean, along the years, there have been other stories of hardship because, again, a lot of students who go into this field often are attracted to the field because of their own um, challenges in life. And trust me, I am empathic with that, but I have to maintain my role as a professor, not as their social worker, in order to be able to create standards for the field. Um, and that's been very difficult, uh, just on a personal note. But this routine part of academia can be especially trying in a course such as diversity, which dredges up painful emotions and memories as students have revelations about their family dynamics and are confronted with their own moral conscience. And where this is a high percentage of grading for class participation, right? It's important in this class that's discussion-based in addition to lecture, so sharing personal trials and tribulations and personal view viewpoints obviously raises vulnerabilities. So we need to make our role in the classroom extremely clear. Now, maintaining appropriate boundaries was all the more apparent on a class focused on mental illness, right? That's part of the aspect of diversity. 
um, as students are prompted to consider the stereotypes of the mentally ill population. And they were expanding their understanding of this population beyond schizophrenics and the seriously persistently mentally ill. They began to relate and question their own mental states of anxiety and depression. And one student shared how she was sexually abused as a child, another about her mother's mental illness, and another student about the traumatization of a a home invasion. So sometimes the students blurred boundaries, and sometimes I can get caught up in balancing, allowing um, a student to have self-expression and the dignity and worth of the student. It's a delicate balance. My general rule of thumb tends to be if the student or the class is gaining something from the experience and the emotional intensity can be contained, it is par for the course. But it's important to remember that professors are not always therapists and they are not always choreographers or conductors, right? That I can um, really determine or direct the course of the conversation. Growth is messy. And even though it's important to have a sense of control over one's classrooms and discussions, when teaching in a manner other than straight lecture, there's always going to be a degree of unpredictability. But if you want students to take risks in sharing their lived experiences and their perspectives, the professor must be willing to model risk. Well, despite the challenges and the ruminations and the difficult moments, I have to say it's a gift to be able to watch students broaden their lens and likewise grow personally and professionally from the interactions. Um, It's always my hope that some of the suggestions put forth here will make these oftentimes treacherous feelings a bit easier and um, move forward, the ability to create courageous conversations. So what have I learned? Uh, I have my own white and economic guilt, particularly teaching students who can't afford to just be students, who work two jobs in order to ascend school, who have co-parenting responsibilities or single parenting, who sometimes can't afford to buy the textbook for class. I have thought about how I want it to be perceived and how I actually may be perceived. I have considered those white students in my class who may have felt shamed and alienated for being privileged as I drove home the oppression of people of color to the benefit of the dominant group. And how in this way, by allying with the oppressed, I became the oppressor. I have thought about things I should have said things I shouldn't have said. I have thought about how much my students have taught me by sharing their experiences. And I've been reminded about how important it is to listen because generally when we listen, we tend to be busy thinking about what we want to say next and we have to stop that. I have been humbled time and again to see the other as expert and to focus on the value in what the other person is saying before considering my own reaction to it. I have to believe that in teaching and taking this course and talking about its content and being open to our errors positions ourselves to be better human beings. Classroom discussions, hundreds of decisions are being made in the blink of an eye. Do you call on that student who doesn't have a voice or hasn't spoken, allowing themselves to have some room? Do you call on that student again and again and again who continues to want to express their voice? Do you pursue a particular discussion? Do you deny students their voice because of the pressure of time, 
versus attempting to control the classroom climate. There is so many intersections of so many emotional lives that are alive and well in the classroom. Our students are our clients and our clients are our students struggling with mental health, facing the realities of complex lives and multiple burdens. They are not yet fully developed and are often fragile beneath the surface. I think the way that this content is tackled in the classroom has to be similar to the way that is being addressed outside of the classroom, which is simple as this. Be open to the conversations, show that you're interested in learning, be willing to make mistakes, be kind to yourself through the process of growth, and be kind to other people who may hold beliefs, biases, perceptions, and perspectives that are different from your own. Thanks for listening. I really appreciate it. If you liked what you heard, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have a question for me, follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Myers Pod. That's D-R-M-E-Y-E-R-S-P-O-D. And send me a DM for a chance to get your question answered on the podcast. I've got some problems, yeah, I've got some questions. I need some help, point me in any direction. Clinical guidance is what I need to help me become who I'm meant to be. I've been searching for a teacher, another point of view. And I've been asking myself, what would Dr. Myers do?